Section 1 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. On Saturday the 14th of August 1773, late in the evening, I received a note from him that he was arrived at Boyd's Inn at the head of the Cannon Gate. I went to him directly. He embraced me cordially and I exulted in the thought that I now had him actually in Caledonia. Mr. Scott's amiable manners and attachment to our Socrates at once united me to him. He told me that before I came in, the doctor had unluckily had a bad specimen of Scottish cleanliness. He then drank no fermented liquor. He asked to have his lemonade made sweeter, upon which the waiter with his greasy fingers lifted a lump of sugar and put it into it. The doctor, in indignation, threw it out of the window. Scott said he was afraid he would have knocked the waiter down. Mr. Johnson told me that such another trick was played him at the house of a lady in Paris. He was to do me the honour to lodge under my roof. I regretted sincerely that I had not also a room for Mr. Scott. Mr. Johnson and I walked arm in arm up the high street to my house in James's Court. It was a dusky night. I could not prevent his being assailed by the evening effluvia of Edinburgh. I heard a late baronet of some distinction in the political world in the beginning of the present reign observe that walking the streets of Edinburgh at night was pretty perilous and a good deal odoriferous. The peril is much abated by the care which the magistrates have taken to enforce the city laws against throwing foul water from the windows but from the structure of the houses in the old town, which consist of many stories, in each of which a different family lives, and there being no covered sewers, the odour still continues. A zealous Scotsman would have wished Mr. Johnson to be without one of his five senses upon this occasion. As we marched slowly along, he grumbled in my ear, I smell you in the dark. But he acknowledged that the breadth of the street and the loftiness of the buildings on each side made a noble appearance. My wife had tea ready for him, which is well known he delighted to drink at all hours, particularly when sitting up late, and of which his able defence against Mr. Jonas Hanway should have obtained him a magnificent reward from the East India Company. He showed much complacency upon finding that the mistress of the house was so attentive to his singular habit, and as no man could be more polite when he chose to be so, his address to her was most courteous and engaging, and his conversation soon charmed her into a forgetfulness of his external appearance. I did not begin to keep a regular full journal till some days after we had set out from Edinburgh, but I have luckily preserved a good many fragments of his memorabilia from his very first evening in Scotland. We had, a little before this, had a trial for murder, in which the judges had allowed the lapse of twenty years since its commission as a plea in bar, in conformity with the doctrine of prescription in the civil law, which Scotland and several other countries in Europe have adopted. He at first disapproved of this, but then he thought there was something in it if there had been for twenty years a neglect to prosecute a crime which was known. He would not allow that a murder by not being discovered for twenty years should escape punishment. We talked of the ancient trial by duel. 
he did not think it so absurd as is generally supposed for said he it was only allowed when the question was in equilibrio as when one affirmed and another denied and they had a notion that providence would interfere in favour of him who was in the right but as it was found that in a duel he who was in the right had not a better chance than he who was in the wrong therefore society instituted the present mode of trial and gave the advantage to him who is in the right we sat till near two in the morning having chatted a good while after my wife left us she had insisted that to show all respect to the sage she would give up her own bedchamber to him and take a worse this i cannot but gratefully mention as one of a thousand obligations which i owe her since the great obligation of her being pleased to accept of me as her husband sunday fifteen august mr scott came to breakfast at which i introduced to dr johnson and him my friend sir william forbes now of pitsligo a man of whom too much good cannot be said who with distinguished abilities and application in his profession of a banker is at once a good companion and a good christian which i think is saying enough yet it is but justice to record that once when he was in a dangerous illness he was watched with the anxious apprehension of a general calamity day and night his house was beset with affectionate inquiries and upon his recovery te deum was the universal chorus from the hearts of his countrymen mr johnson was pleased with my daughter veronica then a child of about four months old she had the appearance of listening to him his motion seemed to her to be intended for her amusement and when he stopped she fluttered and made a little infantine noise and a kind of signal for him to begin again she would be held close to him which was a proof from simple nature that his figure was not horrid her fondness for him endeared her still more to me and i declared she should have five hundred pounds of additional fortune we talked of the practice of the law sir william forbes said he thought an honest lawyer should never undertake a cause which he was satisfied was not a just one sir said mr johnson a lawyer has no business with the justice or injustice of the cause which he undertakes unless his client asks his opinion and then he is bound to give it honestly the justice or injustice of the cause is to be decided by the judge consider sir what is the purpose of courts of justice it is that every man may have his cause fairly tried by men appointed to try causes a lawyer is not to tell what he knows to be a lie he is not to produce what he knows to be a false deed but he is not to usurp the province of the jury and of the judge and determine what shall be the effect of evidence what shall be the result of legal argument as it rarely happens that a man is fit to plead his own cause lawyers are a class of the community who by study and experience have acquired the art and power of arranging evidence and of applying to the points at issue what the law has settled a lawyer is to do for his client all that his client might fairly do for himself if he could if by a superiority of attention of knowledge of skill and a better method of communication he has the advantage of his adversary it is an advantage to which he is entitled there must always be some advantage on one side or other and it is better that advantage should be had by talents than by chance if lawyers were to undertake no causes till they were sure they were just 
a man might be precluded altogether from a trial of his claim, though were it judicially examined, it might be found a very just claim. This was sound practical doctrine, and rationally repressed a too refined scrupulosity of conscience. Emigration was at this time a common topic of discourse. Dr. Johnson regretted it as hurtful to human happiness, for, says he, it spreads mankind, which weakens the defence of a nation and lessens the comfort of living. Men, thinly scattered, make a shift, but a bad shift, without many things. A smith is ten miles off, they'll do without a nail or a staple. A tailor is far from them, they'll botch their own clothes. It is being concentrated which produces high convenience. Sir William Forbes, Mr. Scott and I accompanied Mr. Johnson to the chapel founded by Lord Chief Baron Smith for the service of the Church of England. The Reverend Mr. Carr, the senior clergyman, preached from these words, Because the Lord reigneth, let the earth be glad. I was sorry to think Mr. Johnson did not attend to the sermon, Mr. Carr's low voice not being strong enough to reach his hearing. A selection of Mr. Carr's sermons has, since his death, been published by Sir William Forbes, and the world has acknowledged their uncommon merit. I am well assured Lord Mansfield has pronounced them to be excellent. Here I obtained a promise from Lord Chief Baron Ord that he would dine at my house next day. I presented Mr. Johnson to his lordship, who politely said to him, I have not the honour of knowing you, but I hope for it, and to see you at my house. I am to wait on you to-morrow. This respectable English judge will be long remembered in Scotland, where he built an elegant house and lived in it magnificently. His own ample fortune, with the addition of his salary, enabled him to be splendidly hospitable. It may be fortunate for an individual amongst ourselves to be Lord Chief Baron, and a most worthy man now has the office. But in my opinion, it is better for Scotland in general that some of our public employment should be filled by gentlemen of distinction from the south side of the Tweed, as we have the benefit of promotion in England. Such an interchange would make a beneficial mixture of manners and render our union more complete. Lord Chief Baron Ord was on good terms with us all in a country filled with jarring interests and keen parties, and though I well knew his opinion to be the same with my own, he kept himself aloof at a very critical period indeed, when the Douglas cause shook the sacred security of birthright in Scotland to its foundation, a cause which, had it happened before the Union, when there was no appeal to a British House of Lords, would have left the great fortress of honours and of property in ruins. When we got home, Dr. Johnson desired to see my books. He took down Ogden's sermons on prayer, on which I set a very high value, having been much edified by them, and he retired with them to his room. He did not stay long, but soon joined us in the drawing-room. I presented to him Mr. Robert Arbuthnot, a relation of the celebrated Dr. Arbuthnot, and a man of literature and taste. To him we were obliged for a previous recommendation, which secured us a very agreeable reception at St. Andrews, and which Dr. Johnson in his journey ascribes to some invisible friend. Of Dr. Beattie, Mr. Johnson said, Sir, he has written like a man conscious of the truth and feeling his own strength. 
treating your adversary with respect is giving him an advantage to which he is not entitled. The greatest part of men cannot judge of reasoning and are impressed by character, so that if you allow your adversary a respectable character, they will think that though you differ from him, you may be in the wrong. Sir, treating your adversary with respect is striking soft in a battle, and as to Hume, a man who has so much conceit as to tell all mankind that they have been bubbled for ages, and he is the wise man who sees better than they, a man who has so little scrupulosity as to venture to oppose those principles which have been thought necessary to human happiness, is he to be surprised if another man comes and laughs at him? If he is the great man he thinks himself, all this cannot hurt him. It is like throwing peas against a rock. He added, something much too rough, both as to Mr. Hume's head and heart, which I suppress. Violence is, in my opinion, not suitable to the Christian cause. Besides, I always lived on good terms with Mr. Hume, though I frankly told him I was not clear that it was right in me to keep company with him. But, said I, how much better are you than your books? He was cheerful, obliging, and instructive. He was charitable to the poor, and many an agreeable hour have I passed with him. I have preserved some entertaining and interesting memoirs of him, particularly when he knew himself to be dying, which I may some time or other communicate to the world. I shall not, however, extol him so very highly as Dr. Adam Smith does, who says in a letter to Mr. Strahan, the printer, not a confidential letter to his friend, but a letter which is published with all formality. Upon the whole, I have always considered him, both in his lifetime and since his death, as approaching as nearly to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of human frailty will permit. Let Dr. Smith consider. Was not Mr. Hume blessed with good health, good spirits, good friends, a competent and increasing fortune, and had he not also a perpetual feast of fame? But as a learned friend has observed to me, what trials did he undergo to prove the perfection of his virtue? Did he ever experience any great instance of adversity? When I read this sentence, delivered by my old professor of moral philosophy, I could not help exclaiming with the psalmist, Surely I have now more understanding than my teachers. While we were talking, there came a note to me from Dr. William Robertson. Dear Sir, I have been expecting every day to hear from you of Dr. Johnson's arrival. Pray, what do you know about his motions? I long to take him by the hand. I write this from the college where I have only this scrap of paper. Ever yours, W.R. It pleased me to find Dr. Robertson thus eager to meet Dr. Johnson. I was glad that I could answer that he was come, and I begged Dr. Robertson might be with us as soon as he could. Sir William Forbes, Mr. Scott, Mr. Arbuthnot and another gentleman dined with us. Come, Dr. Johnson, said I. It is commonly thought that our veal in Scotland is not good, but here is some which I believe you will like. There was no catching him. Johnson. Why, sir? What is commonly thought I should take to be true? Your veal may be good, but that will only be an exception to the general opinion, not a proof against it. Dr. Robertson, according to the custom of Edinburgh at that time, dined in the interval between the forenoon and afternoon service, which was then later than now, so he had not the pleasure of his company till dinner was over, 
when he came and drank wine with us, and then began some animated dialogue of which here follows a pretty full note. We talked of Mr. Burke. Dr. Johnson said he had great variety of knowledge, store of imagery, copiousness of language. Robertson, he has wit too. Johnson, no, sir, he never succeeds there. Tis low, tis conceit. I used to say Burke never once made a good joke. What I must envy Burke for is his being constantly the same. He's never what we call humdrum, never unwilling to begin to talk, nor in haste to leave off. Boswell, yet he can listen. Johnson, no, I cannot say he's good at that. So desirous is he to talk, that if one is speaking at the end of the table, he'll speak to somebody at the other end. Burke, sir, is such a man that if you met him for the first time in a street where you were stopped by a drove of oxen and you and he stepped aside to take shelter but for five minutes, he'd talk to you in such a manner that when you parted you would say, This is an extraordinary man. Now you may be long enough with me without finding anything extraordinary. He said he believed Burke was intended for the law, but either had not money enough to follow it or had not diligence enough. He said he could not understand how a man could apply to one thing and not to another. Robertson said one man had more judgment, another more imagination. Johnson. No, sir, it is only one man has more mind than another. He may direct it differently. He may by accident see the success of one kind of study and take a desire to excel in it. I am persuaded that had Sir Isaac Newton applied to poetry, he would have made a very fine epic poem. I could as easily apply to law as to tragic poetry. Boswell. Yet, sir, you did apply to tragic poetry, not to law. Johnson. Because, sir, I had not money to study law. Sir, the man who has vigour may walk to the east just as well to the west, if he happens to turn his head that way. Boswell. But, sir, tis like walking up and down a hill. One man will naturally do the one better than the other. A hare will run up a hill best, from her forelegs being short, a dog down. Johnson. Nay, sir, that is from mechanical powers. If you make mine mechanical, you may argue in that manner. One mind is a vice and holds fast. There's a good memory. Another is a file, and he is a disputant, a controversialist. Another is a razor, and he is sarcastical. We talked of Whitefield. He said he was at the same college with him and knew him before he began to be better than other people, smiling. That he believed he sincerely meant well, but had a mixture of politics and ostentation, whereas Wesley thought of religion only. Robertson said Whitefield had strong natural eloquence, which, if cultivated, would have done great things. Johnson. Why, sir, I take it he was at the height of what his abilities could do, and was sensible of it. He had the ordinary advantages of education, but he chose to pursue that oratory which is for the mob. Boswell. He had great effect on the passions. Johnson. Why, sir, I don't think so. He could not represent a succession of pathetic images. He vociferated and made an impression. There, again, was a mind like a hammer. Dr. Johnson now said a certain eminent political friend of ours was wrong in his maxim of sticking to a certain set of men on all occasions. I can see that a man may do right to stick to a party, said he, 
That is to say, he is a Whig, or he is a Tory, and he thinks one of those parties upon the whole the best, and that to make it prevail it must be generally supported, though in particulars it may be wrong. He takes its faggot of principles, in which there are fewer rotten sticks than in the other, though some rotten sticks to be sure, and they cannot well be separated. But to bind oneself to one man, or one set of men, who may be right to-day and wrong to-morrow, without any general preference of system, I must disapprove. He told us of Cook, who translated Hesiod, and lived twenty years on a translation of Plautus, for which he was always taking subscriptions, and that he presented foot to a club in the following singular manner. This is the nephew of the gentleman who was lately hung in chains for murdering his brother. In the evening I introduced to Mr. Johnson two good friends of mine, Mr. William Nairn, advocate, and Mr. Hamilton of Sundrum, my neighbour in the country, both of whom supped with us. I have preserved nothing of what passed, except that Dr. Johnson displayed another of his heterodox opinions, a contempt of tragic acting. He said, The action of all players in tragedy is bad. It should be a man's study to repress those signs of emotion and passion, as they are called. He was of a directly contrary opinion to that of Fielding in his Tom Jones, who makes Partridge say of Garrick, Why, I could act as well as he myself. I'm sure if I'd seen a ghost, I should have looked in the very same manner, and done just as he did. For when I asked him, Would you not, sir, start as Mr. Garrick does if you saw a ghost? He answered, I hope not. If I did, I should frighten the ghost. End of section one.